Normally, you guys know when I preach a passage, I look at the historical application, what about man, what did he do? And then I look at the theological, what about God, what did he do and why did he do it? And then I look at the personal, what about me and what about us and what are we supposed to do? I'm not going to do that with this passage today because it's such an unusual passage. And it requires us to look at it in a completely different way than what we normally do. So have you ever seen a mural telling a complicated story where you have to interpret each image in order? Like, for, this is an example. This is a, a mural of the history of Mexico. But to really understand everything that's in it, you would need a guide who has studied it and understood it to walk you through what each picture means. And that's what we have today in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. This passage is a beautiful verbal mural of the story of the church. If you guys remember last week at the end of chapter 11, or end of chapter 10, John was commanded to eat the scroll that was being held by the angel, which we believe was the Holy Spirit, and to prophesy to the nations both the bitterness and the sweetness of the gospel. Some of you will remember that. If you don't, here was the verse from Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. And I was told you must again, that means the Greek word means repeatedly, you must repeatedly prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The gospel would be both sweet as honey for those that understand mercy and grace and have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church as a call back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But the gospel, according to last week's passage, is also bitter with words of judgment and condemnation for those who refuse to believe and repent. And proclaiming the unfiltered, bittersweet gospel, we talked about this last week, it puts us at odds with a world that just doesn't want to hear it. Well, today's passage describes the entire age of the gospel, the church. It describes the past, it describes the right now, and the not yet. And this passage, ironically, if you think about it, maybe you don't realize this, chapter 11, this passage is the very center of Revelation. It is, for lack of a better term, a halftime pep talk preparing us for what is to come. And this passage is full of powerful symbolism of the gospel's power and blessing and, frankly, its consequences as it is proclaimed through a hostile world. It's a mural telling the story as God's witnesses throughout the age. Let's uncover the mystery one image at a time, shall we? I'm going to start off, instead of reading the passage like I normally do, I'm going to break it up and read the passage as we go. The first thing I want you to see is this idea of the temple of God. It's in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Do you guys remember from our previous passages who worships at the altar and under the altar? It's the church, the saints, the martyrs. Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside of the temple. Leave that out. For it has been given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the first verse in this passage declares what the subject of this whole mural is. It's the temple of God. So... When I say the word temple, what pops into your head? 
I mean, obviously, humanly speaking, we think of a building, stone, brick, mortar, a cathedral. But in the Bible, the temple was never really about a building, but the place where God would dwell with his people. A building can be a temple, but all throughout Scripture, we see God's temple is not fact actually primarily a building. It was only a building for a couple of times. For example, did you know Jesus clearly taught when he was doing his earthly ministry that he was now the temple, as well as those who are in Christ? The apostles taught this as well. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 2, 19 to 21. Jesus answered them. Remember what this, here's what happened. The, the disciples said, Jesus, look at this beautiful building. Look at the stones. And here's what he says. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Did you know throughout the Old Testament, the, this is really fascinating. Did you know the Garden of Eden where God walked and talked with Adam and Eve is actually described using the same terms and words used to describe the temple that Solomon built? I think that's fascinating. Before the first temple was built, God's presence was where? In a tent. It was mobile. They called it the tabernacle. There are so many other examples of things that served as a temple, meaning the place where God meets and dwells with his people all throughout. As a matter of fact, look what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 5 of his first letter. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as, as a spiritual house, another word for temple, to be a holy priesthood. So this is the correct way, biblically, to interpret temple references throughout the book of Revelation as the presence of God among his people. For example, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city. This is New Jerusalem that comes down, which is another picture of the church. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus said his body was the temple. So what I need you to do is undo this paradigm in your head that when you hear the word temple, brick, mortar, cathedral. No, temple where people meet with God. And we see, Peter says, God is meeting within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this idea of measuring? He says, I was given a rod and I was told to measure the temple. This command to measure the temple is actually a quote, an exact quote, totally taken and lifted from Zechariah chapter 2. So we know when we're trying to interpret Revelation, we have to open up the Old Testament that it quotes and this passage in Zechariah 2 was meant for this, and it says this. It was a symbol of God separating and sanctifying and protecting his people. As a matter of fact, throughout the Old Testament, every time you see the concept of measuring or counting, you know what it represents? God's complete, intimate knowledge of his temple, the people his watch, and his care over those who he has chosen. The book of Numbers is all about God's intimate knowledge of his people. That's how you interpret the book of Numbers when you read it, that you'll be amazed by how much detail God goes through when it comes to calling his people out of darkness into light. Noah's Ark is another great example of a temple, is it not? Perfectly measured, exact footage, and all these types of things constructed to do what? Preserve God's people. 
It's a beautiful symbol of God's intimate knowledge of his church, this measuring idea. And that's what's happening in this first part. God is saying, John, take out a rod and measure the temple of, the, of, of, the temple of God. Here's another example of how we know that measuring is an example of God intimately knowing his people. Look at Luke 12, 7. What does Jesus say? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. And if you don't open the Old Testament when you're reading Revelation, you'll never see this. But it's so obvious when you start looking at the rest of Scripture. So when it comes to his temple, which is the church, our God cares about every detail. Down to each hair on the head of his chosen. But John is told to not measure, to leave out the outer court. That part of the temple is going to be trampled by Gentiles. Gentiles is just another word for unbelievers. It doesn't mean non-Jews. It means those who don't believe the gospel. You know why there's no measuring of the outer court? There is no love. There is no knowledge. There is no separation or protection for those who are not part of his temple. Those outside of the ark, outside of Jesus. There's no need to measure there. And this trampling that we're going to learn about, I'll, I'll give you some more information on this later, this trampling for 42 months, and we'll talk about that, is a symbol of the tribulation. Seals 1 through 4 and trumpets 1 through 4. John, as a matter of fact, said, I am partners with you in the tribulation. So we know it was happening then, and it is happening now today. He said in John chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Well, what tribulation? The tribulation. <laughs> The kingdom and the patient endurance in Jesus. It's the story of evil, this trampling of the outer court that resents God's killing, that represents God's killing of the martyrs. Do you remember in our earlier sermon who are praying under the altar? How long, O Lord? What is this message of measuring? Fear not. God has taken full measure of his temple setting us apart from the nations for redemption. All right, now let's get into the part that there's no controversy that everybody agrees. <clears throat> I want to talk about the authority of two witnesses. Here's the passage, and I will grant this is after he's told to measure the temple, but not the outer court because that's trampled by unbelievers. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, which is another way to say 42 months clothed in sackcloth. So why are there two witnesses? Well, did you know Old Testament law required that if somebody violated one of the commandments, they could not be charged guilty or even tried unless there were two witnesses. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of two witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. I could have taken you through 20 more verses that talk about this. So the idea of two witnesses is not an unusual phrase in Revelation. It's actually all throughout the scripture. And to understand it, you have to interpret it with all the other places it is used. Sackcloth. He says they're prophesying in sackcloth. What does that mean? All throughout the Old Testament, sackcloth is the clothing that is to be worn in a response to a command to repent. David wore sackcloth when he repented of his sin of sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. There are tons of examples of sackcloth being used 
as a symbol of repentance. I'm not going to put all the verses up there. I'm just going to ask you to trust that I'm not lying to you about it. It's all through the scripture. This is the nature of their witness, these two witnesses. And here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is now. Repent or be judged with eternal death. If you believe and repent out his disciples in twos. And what did he do? He gave them authority to declare guilt for the unrepentant. Look in Luke chapter 10, verses 1, and then we'll look at verses 10 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Look what verse 10 says. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into his streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Remember that Jesus mentions the word Sodom and judgment because it comes in handy in interpreting this passage later. But you see, Jesus used the two witnesses idea, did he not? There are literally 27 examples of what two witnesses were used for. It is to verify the charge against the guilty. You know, Jesus also gives insight into this authority we have as witnesses from heaven. Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree... Oh, there's two again. Interesting. You see how the scripture works? Where two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Where God meets with his people. This is a temple with authority from heaven. It's critical in understanding this passage that the testimony of two witnesses is needed to condemn those who refuse to believe. These witnesses have spiritual authority to declare the unrepentant guilty without excuse. This is the bitter part of the gospel. But who are these witnesses exactly? What are their names? <clears throat> Look at the passage. This is a long one, so bear with me. Who are these witnesses? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So this is a challenging, troubling passage. In other words, if you don't do what I tell you, I can breathe fire on you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. I'm just kidding. John says that they, these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands. You know what this is? This is a clear callback and fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4. Let's look at it. Verses 3 through 6. There are two olive trees by it. You know what it's by? The altar on the right of the bowl. Do you guys remember what the bowl represented? The incense, the prayers of the saints. Hmm, there's a clue. There are two olive trees, one, right by, uh, one to the right of the bowl, the other to the left. And I said to the angel, what are these, my Lord? I love the angel's answer. Do you not know what these are? <laughs> I said, no, my Lord, I don't. <laughs> Then he said, this is the word of the Lord. 
to Zerubbabel, who was the king of Judea at the time, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zerubbabel, king of Judea, is a direct descendant of Jesus. You know what his job was? It's going to blow you away to rebuild the second temple by the power of the Lord. Look at verse 12 of the same passage. And a second time I answered and said, what are these two branches of the olive trees beside the two golden pipes from which golden oil is poured out? That is key. What is oil used to burn the lampstands? He said to me, do you not know who these are? Again with this. <laughs> I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is a description of lampstands. Oil from branches fueling golden pipes. Who do lampstands represent in Revelation? Have we ever seen this? The churches. It describes witnesses with the power of a kingdom, Zerubbabel, and the spiritual authority of priests next to the altar, lampstands. The plagues that they have power over, you know what they represent? It represents power to judge the nations on the day of the Lord as part of the army of the Lord when Jesus returns. Watch this. This will give you chills. Look what Paul says in Corinthians 6. Do you not know? Does that sound like a familiar phrase from Zechariah? <laughs> Paul did this on purpose. He did it all the time. He's calling a very familiar phrase from an Old Testament prophecy that all Jews hearing him would know. Oh my gosh, do you not know? That's Zechariah chapter 4. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? Do you not know we're to judge angels? Isn't that cool? Paul was making a very clear connection to that famous passage in Zechariah. His readers would have picked up on it immediately. This is not supernatural power that they wield during their prophesying, but after, on the day of the Lord, as part of the army of God. And then there's this description in the passage about their death. After they've prophesied, there's this death and resurrection. Look what it says in chapter 7, or verse 7 of chapter 11. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless, bottomless pit, we talked about him a few weeks ago, Satan, will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, does it? And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically was called Sodom in Egypt. Remember what Jesus said to tell the, the towns that reject them? Judgment will be like Sodom for you. Where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people's tribes, languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Why were they a torment? Because of that bittersweet gospel. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. They're resurrected. And great fear fell upon those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. At that hour, right when they are raptured away, at that moment, not later, at that moment that they are raptured, there was a great earthquake. 
and one-tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed. This, this is the same as the one-third killed during the sixth trumpet. An earthquake always is a sign that final judgment is coming now. In the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come, which is the return of Jesus. All right, you guys know enough. Let's close in prayer. You don't need to know anymore, right? <clears throat> By the way, just make a note. If you're taking notes, what I just read to you, this also was copied from another place in Scripture. I just don't have time to read it. It's, write it down if you want to read it later. Psalm 79, verses 2 through 6. Once again, Revelation taking, lifting whole passages from the Old Testament into the New Testament. This beast that makes war against us, the witnesses, the temple of God, because he and the nations, Satan has control. They hate our testimony. This is part of the dark story. The church will not get through this tribulation that we are in right now unscathed. We do suffer. We will suffer. But look what happens in Daniel 7, which is the same thing we saw in this passage we just read in Revelation. As I looked, this horn made war against the saints, prevailed over them. Until when? Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This is that glorious day that I taught you a few weeks ago we should be praying for. The day we are resurrected and we meet Jesus in the clouds. Okay, the last picture of the mural before we give you a personal application. I know this is a lot, guys, but I hope you're tracking with me this mural. Look at this, 1,260 days. What does this mean, 42 months? How are we to interpret this time span? The mural of images described in this mural of this, this story of the gospel being preached is the 70th week of Daniel. It is the timeline of Messiah and us his new temple he built in three days. Daniel 9, 27. He shall make a strong covenant. I love that. With many. Remember we discussed the multitude? With many for one week. Obviously it's not seven days. We know that, right? And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I'll get to that in a minute. And on the wing of abominations... And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is ended. The decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So there is a poetic rhythm to interpreting Revelation, especially when it comes to specific numbers. We've already seen, right, clear examples in our study. We're in week 25 of how numbers were used symbolically to describe something rather than used as actual numbers. I gave you some examples. Remember, we broke down the symbolism of this 200 million man army. The 144,000. Those are not actual numbers. They are descriptive numbers. And I broke it down for you how they're connected to the Old Testament and what they really are describing. There are others. Obviously, Daniel's week wasn't seven literal days, but it is a metaphor. It's the same with John's seven years. It's a metaphor for the era of Jesus. This is a mural 
of the age of Christ, starting with his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. In other words, it's all about Jesus. The first half of this week represents the life of Jesus, his earthly ministry, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. And what did he do during that time? He destroyed the old temple, ending blood sacrifices, and built a new temple in three days, us, represented by what? The two witnesses. His new temple prophesies us, the new temple, prophesies through this entire week of Daniel, entire time, these whole metaphoric seven years. And the scripture says many hear and believe and repent. And the gospel is honey to them. They become part of the royal nation of priests. They become testifiers with us. But to many, our testimony is a bitter prophecy of condemnation and future judgment for those who refuse to believe. And he says, and Egypt and Sodom. Egypt always represented slavery and oppression. Sodom represents immorality and sin. Egypt and Sodom, where Jesus was crucified, that is the tribulation right now. Okay. You can see why I couldn't preach it like I normally do. I had to go through and give you an explanation of all these symbols. I know some of you might be lost. That's okay. You can go back and watch it again or listen to it again because there's a lot here. And honestly, I've been nervous all week about preaching it this way because I know some of you have zoned out. I'm sorry, but there's so much here. But it's so inspiring. It is so beautiful. Remember what the scripture is meant to be in Revelation. John said, if you read this, you should be encouraged, inspired, blessed, not frightened or scared. This was the sermon preview this week. Jesus has given his church the spiritual authority to proclaim grace to those who believe and condemnation to those who don't. That is a frightening concept. But this beautiful mural, the story of God's new temple, the church, this nation of royal priests throughout the age, a story of a church with spiritual power and authority over the nations. This story is meant to inspire our faithfulness as witnesses throughout the tribulation. But it's also sobering that God would entrust people like us with his spiritual authority of grace and judgment. It's insane. Do you see what a high glorious view the book of Revelation gives to us, the church of Jesus? That is us. His holy, measured temple. That's why Jesus said the world will hate you. Because our testimony, while it is of grace and mercy, it's also condemnation to those who refuse to believe. And the world rejoices when the church stumbles, does it not? Every time a mega church pastor falls or corruption is exposed, they celebrate our demise in the streets. They will, they have, and they will continue until that day. All the saints, those who have died and those who are still alive are resurrected together 
to meet our Jesus in the clouds. The world will witness that moment. We are all brought together. They will hear Jesus call for us to meet him. And when they see it happen, the celebration will stop and the reality will hit them hard. Imagine the world or evil's horror as the church they thought they had defeated is resurrected and returns with Jesus and we carry out their sentence of judgment. Imagine evil's anxiety once they realize this mural was true. The prophecy of the witnesses throughout the church age is true and we are doomed. And that's why the scripture says after their prophecy and after their resurrection and after that rapture, there was an earthquake, which is a repeated symbol, a warning of imminent final judgment, undeniable all throughout scripture. That's what earthquake means. And the last woe to come. It's the not yet final image in this beautiful mural I've been explaining. It is our ultimate vindication. But until then, we, symbolized by the two witnesses, faithfully proclaim the bitter, sweet gospel. Yes, we wrestle. Yes, we struggle. Yes, we persevere in this tribulation of loss and pain and heartache caused by those who trample the outer court. But we proclaim the gospel with authority from heaven to be sweet words for those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to who? The churches. But it's also authority from heaven declaring the guilt and sentencing that will occur for those who refuse to believe. What a beautiful mural of the plan of redemption explaining the already the right now and the not yet. Church, as you proclaim the gospel, here's what I'm encouraging you to do today. Don't be distracted by all the noise and suffering caused by those who trample the outer court. They're not measured, you are. Don't give in to that temptation. Cultural, political, societal we are God's holy temple we are measured we are counted we are set apart preserved to be his witnesses with full spiritual authority and death will not hold us no matter how hard our role of proclamation becomes we know how it's going to end. So don't hold back. He is with us in his temple, as he said at the Great Commission, until the end of what this mural describes, this age. Jesus, it blows us away. You have called people such as us. To be your witnesses. It's strange 
And I think of the verse that Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, throughout or through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Lord, we confess to you that the trampling of the outer court is loud and it's scary. It intimidates us sometimes. But thank you for painting this mural for us, telling us how it ends. Give us the courage and the conviction to be faithful witnesses throughout this age as we enjoy your presence in your holy temple. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, go this week, measured and counted.